Thank you for being here on this Transfiguration Sunday. It's a bridge Sunday of sort in the church here between Epiphany and Lent, and we're going to talk about that in, um, in just a moment. Let me remind you, Lent does begin this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. We've got two services to invite you to, and just another reminder, at 12 o'clock, the community Lent lunch services begin at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Dr. Jimmy Patterson from First Baptist will be preaching. There'll be lunch afterwards. We will have the imposition of the ashes. It'll be a great time together as a community. And then here at 6.30, we've invited several of our neighboring United Methodist congregations to join us for a service of the ashes, 12 o'clock and 6.30. So I hope we'll see you at one or both of those services. And it's going to be a a meaningful land, I know. We'll provide many opportunities to worship and celebrate together. And I hope you've found a Lenten devotional, a class, a study, some way that you might observe these 40 days. 40 days of Lent, not including Sundays, as we look forward to a holy Easter. But today is Transfiguration Sunday, and there are four scripture lessons appointed for this Sunday. We've already read one of them responsively, Psalm 99, our Psalter for today. Our Old Testament lesson is from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, beginning with verse 12. Exodus 24, beginning with verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses sat out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Here ends our Old Testament reading and then our epistle reading from the epistle of Second Peter. One of those books way back in the New Testament toward the end that we don't look at very often. But I want us to look at Second Peter chapter 1 beginning with verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 16. First Peter, Second Peter, first chapter, verse 16. Here we go. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will. But men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And then our gospel reading, 
Matthew's account of the transfiguration, chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. Would you stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel? Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, Suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So writes the psalmist who, like so many others before him, has been infatuated with the high places on the face of the earth, the mountains, the hills. The high places have always awed us and inspired us and humbled us and sometimes challenged us. There is something about mountains, something timeless and strong. It's as if they have always been and always will be. I love the stanza from the hymn, Before the hills and order stood, or earth received its frame. From everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. I think of it every time I see the mountains and the hills. Mountains are as close to eternity, I think, as anything that we can put our hands on. I'd rather spend a day in the mountains than two days most anywhere else. The mountains just speak so loudly to the size and the strength and the power of our creator who was and is and is to come who's always been. I know that the spirit of the living God is everywhere, but so often when I'm on a mountainside or maybe even a mountaintop, I feel a little closer to that magnificent presence. Dr. C.R. Hill Jr. is a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, C.R. is. He's a retired pastor now, but still serving a church. And he's written a book of poetry. And in that book, there are some poems about the mountains and the hills. And I'll, I'll share a couple of those with you, if that's okay. It won't take long. He said, I stood on top of the world today. My spirit was soaring and free. Below majestic mountains rippled and peaked like waves on a forested sea. I stood on top of the world today. The thrill will be hard to repeat as I studied each ripple and fold of the blue ridge that spread at my feet. I stood on top of the world today. It was a beautiful sight to behold with meadows and lakes blue as could be, dotting forests of crimson and gold. I stood on top of the world today. Lo, as far as my eyes could see, though I own not a single inch, yet it all belonged to me.
there is something about the mountains for me, and, and maybe some of you too, that causes me to want to pause and give thought to the, the days of my life, of my life. If only in my imagination, I find myself in a porch swaying, little hill, little cabin in the hills, squeaky chain porch swing, or an old rickety rocking chair, just rocking and contemplating and thinking, thinking about the days of my life that have already passed by, and thinking about these days that are so significant for me, and then thinking about the days to come. What will my life look like? It's a great place, a great time for me, and maybe you too, to wax poetical or philosophical or even theological about life, the length, the power. C.R. also wrote, he said, I stood on top of the world today. My spirit was soaring and free. And there I saw the mountain of God, beacon God's challenge to me. I stood on top of the world today and thought the prize I had won. Then knew when I saw the mountain of God, the climb I had barely begun. I stood on top of the world today and gazed on the mountain sublime. Yea, though the cliffs I may never scale, in the challenge life's meaning I'll find. Mountains have always played a pivotal role in the history of our world, where towns and villages, communities were established, sometimes has to do with the geography, and the mountains are such an important part of that. And how have mountains also influenced military conflicts across the years? And the way that troops moved about and mountain ranges having their impact on civilization even now, acting as natural borders and boundaries. Mountains are not only determine where people would live, but how? Without saying one word or firing one single shot, mountains have shaped the course of our lives. You ever given any thought or much thought to the prominent role that the mountains and the hills play in the Holy Scriptures throughout the book, in the book of Psalms, the hymn book of the children of Israel, the mountains, the high places are cast in such a favorable light in the words of the psalmist. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north the city of the great king. How many times in the pages of scripture are life-changing, life-transforming events described that are happening on the side or, or on the top of a mountain over and over again? So I want to take a quick walk through scripture, and that sounds like it'll take a long time. It won't, I promise. But if you'll just strap on your hiking boots, let's look through at some of these mountains and what happened there, and then see if we might arrive at the Mount of Transfiguration for today. The first mountain before whose base we'll stop is in the land of Moriah, sometimes called Mount Moriah. Samaritan tradition calls it Mount Gerizim. Something happened there, something almost tragic. To me, one of the most painful passages in all of scripture. Abraham and Sarah gave birth to a son, Isaac. They had waited so long. They had prayed hard. They had given up a few times, but just kept hanging in there. And finally, here's the child, the child they had prayed for. And then one night, God startles Abraham awake with a voice. Take your son, your only son Isaac, and take him up to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. And I just 
struggle with this passage and the pain that's here, and I can't imagine. So Abraham did it, got up early, saddled his ride, got the firewood and the flame and the knife, and took his servants with him, and Isaac And Isaac realized as they began to climb the mountain that the only thing missing was the sacrifice, the lamb. Where was it? But God did provide. And Abraham renamed that mountain, God will provide. Moving on now, second mountain. Perhaps the most famous in the Bible, Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb, it's sometimes called, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And the voice called out as Moses approached the mountain, out of the mountain, telling Moses what to tell the people. And one thing that Moses told the people was, don't touch it. Don't touch this. Don't go near this mountain. Don't go near the borders. Don't put your hands on it. Whoever did was to be stoned to death. That would probably have kept me away from it, I hope. And in the account, we're told that God came down on Mount Sinai, the presence of God. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up and it was there that the Ten Commandments and other words were given that would guide and shape the life of God's people across the years, even now. From Sinai to Mount Carmel, it's north of Sinai. Mount Carmel, you recall, was the site of a confrontation between the prophets of God and the prophets of Baal, or Baal, as some would say. And if we listen carefully, we can hear the echo of Elijah's stately voice bouncing off of those timeless ancient hills. How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow God. But if Baal, then Baal. Follow Baal. But Elijah devised a test. We're going to figure out who the real God is. And it's one of the most amazing things in the Old Testament. You prepare two bulls, cut them up. Not a good day for them. Put them on two stacks of wood. And then the prophets of Baal, they go first. Common courtesy, I suppose. Let the other guy go first. And they prayed and they danced and they cried out and nothing happened. And Elijah taunted them a little bit, said some unkind things, said some things that probably are better not said in church. He was just picking at these folks. And then it was his turn. And he soaked down the altar in the wood and he called and God sent flames of fire and they licked up even the water in the trench. And it was all burned up. The doubters in the crowd were converted. The prophets of Baal were eliminated. Now, I know we don't have much time on this tour, so we need to go on to the New Testament. There's some hills there. There's some mountains there. There's some we need to remember. And the first we encounter is the Mount of Olives. And we need to watch our steps, maybe take our shoes off, or if there is such a thing as holy ground in this world, there it is. The Last Supper concluded, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And in a special place on this mountain, a garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And Jesus' soul, his heart was pressed that night. And he prayed to God and asked that this 
cross be taken from him, that this cup be taken from him. And later Jesus was arrested here and betrayed with a kiss of all things. From the Mount of Olives to a place called Calvary, probably on the crossroads right outside of town with a a brick, not brick, but a stone wall with the shape of a skull, Golgotha it was called. Hymn writers have called it Mount Calvary or on the hill far away where an old rugged cross stood. Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull, the depth of the silence that surrounds this lonely place is overwhelming. The sounds of hammers striking nails, the groans and cries of anguish, the uncontrollable weeping, the harsh laughter of those who gambled for a seamless robe, the hateful, angry voices of those who mocked and scorned, All of these sounds, all of these noises, carried away a long time ago by the same wind that drives the sand into the face of the hill and shapes out the place of the skull. Now before we return, there's one other mountain we need to take a few steps back from Calvary and take a look at. A high mountain known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew, and our gospel lesson for today, doesn't say exactly which mountain this is. I know scholars have debated that, and there are many possible locations. It could have been one of the mountains we've already considered today. But Matthew, maybe not tell us which mountain it is exactly, but he's going to tell us what happens there, and who was there, and what's really important about all of this. While they were there... Jesus was transfigured, and he had taken with him Peter and James and John, and and they were on the mountaintop together, and he was transfigured or transformed. His face shone like the sun. His clothing became dazzling white. Quite a display of the power of an awesome God there on that mountaintop. And then two other folks show up, Folks who had had some mountaintop experiences in their own lifetimes. Yes, Moses and Elijah. They'd been a long time what Jerry Clower would call graveyard dead. And when they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration to represent the law and the prophets, what a sight. And then Peter, no surprise here. Peter makes the inappropriate suggestions. Let's build three dwelling places or three booths. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Lord, what do you say? And then we can just hang out up here forever. And Peter was carrying on as only he could. And a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples were filled with awe. They fell on their faces. They were afraid. Jesus touched them and said, get up. Don't be afraid. Fear would hamper their ministry. Fear has interfered with our witness across the years. Fear causes the church to stumble. Jesus said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they opened their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I learned a few years back, and I know this is not always the truth. Some of you are in real estate no better than I do. But I learned that the higher up you go with mountain property, the more expensive it often becomes. And I thought, well, that didn't make any sense to me because access to the high places is sometimes difficult and hard to 
get there. But with the mountain property, it seems like what really matters, the primary factor, is the view. What can you see from your place on the mountain? The transfiguration took place on a mountaintop, and the view must have been spectacular. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What a view. The writer of our epistle lesson, the second letter of Peter, one of those books that we sometimes sort of overlook. It's just hanging out there toward the end of the New Testament. The writer, Peter, had this view from the mountaintop. But we were all eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. You remember Jesus had also heard that voice and those words at his baptism. Peter's view from the mountain was of the majestic glory of Christ. How long has it been since we've put put ourselves in a place to view the majestic glory of Christ? Of Jesus the Christ. How long has it been? We've put a lot of focus on the humanity of Jesus, and well, we should. What happens in the Apostles' Creed between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate? There's a long dash there, so to speak, and those things that happened during that time were significant. The suffering servant, the humble birth, the torturous death. But sometimes in the process, we overlook the majestic glory of Christ. And that's a view we neglect to our own detriment. Just a couple of things. Now, we need to view the majestic glory of Christ and to realize that here is a Savior who has the power to forgive and cleanse all of our sins, regardless of how ugly we think they might be. We need to view the majestic glory of Christ and realize that here is a Savior who has the compassion to be with us in our deepest hurts, in our greatest heartaches. We need to view the majestic glory of Christ and to realize that here is a Lord and Savior that will have the final word when it comes to the problems of evil and injustice and oppression and brokenness in this world. We need to view the majestic glory of Christ and realize that here is one who has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty while the ages roll by. We need to view the majestic glory of Christ and realize here is a Savior who loves us completely as if we were the only folk on this earth. Loves us enough to die for us. The transfiguration, it it looks back to the time when the voice was heard at the baptism. This is my beloved son. And it looks forward to the resurrection glory. It was a life-changing, life-transforming, transfiguring event for those who were there on the mountaintop. And it can be that same thing for each of us. And for us together as a church, some anxiety, some fear of uncertain times, a good time to consider the majestic glory of Christ. And all of this transfiguration business took place 
on a mountaintop. Of course, where else? Where else would God pick to show out in such a marvelous fashion? Amen.